Church, I'll encourage you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we have landed this morning as we press forward in our series that I've titled that the nations may rejoice. And we've been focusing on God's redemptive purpose as revealed in his word throughout history, that he has always been about bringing the nations to a knowledge and understanding of himself and of his glory. And so to this point in our series on missions, we've focused intently on God's purpose In doing just that, to redeem for himself a people that would make his name known among the nations. And we've looked to God's covenant with Abraham in session one and heard God's decree uh, to Abraham. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And here we saw the person and the purpose of God reveal the mission of God, that is in knowing God personally, and that we then can know God's purpose of making his name known, and that therefore reveals the mission for us as the people of God to join him in that, to join him in making his name known. And so we also saw there in God's call to Abraham how missions is directed by the will of God for the glory of God. So as we know the person, we come to know the person as he reveals himself in his word, and then we therefore come to know the purpose, well there we see that it is God's will that is directing and turning and and capitulating the, the direction of missions for his glory. And then last week, we turned our attention to the Exodus. So we moved from Abraham, and then we jumped to the Exodus to see God's redemptive uh, purpose faithfully continued in his actions in the person of Moses. And so through Moses, we learned how the personal nature of God reveals his heart for mission. So there we saw how God said, I revealed myself as God Almighty, as El Shaddai, but I had not yet fully made myself known as Yahweh. And so there we saw in him giving his personal name to his people, showing himself in the midst of their, sinful, of their struggle, in the midst of a sinful world, We saw how God's covenant faithfulness is the hope of missions. That as God was acting in continuation and faithfulness of his covenant to Abraham to redeem his people from the hands of the Egyptians, we there saw how God is continuing throughout Scripture to remain faithful to his covenants and to redeem for himself a people that he might be made known among the nations. And so in all of our talk about the redemptive purpose of God as revealed in Scripture, and in all of our talk of God's glory being made known among the nations, it can be all too easy for us to then look at our our different missions organizations, for us to look at the IMB, or for us to look at NAM. So that's the International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board, or for us to, to look to the, to the SBTC and their actions in Texas uh, focused there and to think, what are they doing to combat these numbers? Last week, I, I revealed several numbers, right, of all the, the vast lostness in our world and, and in, in our nation in particular, 
And so it can be all too easy for us to see the mission and then for us to, to see the need, the lostness, but then for us to look to these organizations and, and think to ourselves, what are they doing to fight back the darkness and to spread the gospel? And to think, what are these organizations? How are they working? How are they strategizing and, and, and mobilizing and doing all of this? But what I want us this morning here as local church, as God's body here at Southside, what I want us to realize is that this call does not begin with organizations, okay? Because these organizations ultimately have been form, formed and shaped by the local church, right? So this call and this, the need does not begin with these organizations, or meeting the need, rather, doesn't begin with these organizations. But as we see in God's Word, the burden does not fall on them. It falls on His church, okay? And so it can be all too easy in our modern missions context for us to look to those organizations as the answer to the problem. What are they doing? Where are they at? How are they mobilizing? Where are they acting? And, And what are their strategies and their visions? And for us to put all the onus on these organizations that we've created, and then for us to realize or or lose sight, rather, of the fact that, no, this responsibility and this call is on us, That, that ultimately these organizations only serve to equip the church, right? And it's not up to the organization, it's up to the church. And we need to realize that, and in this morning's text, just glaringly and blatantly makes that obvious to us. So I want us to see and to be compelled at the truth that the responsibility of answering the call of missions falls on the very vehicle which God has created to take his gospel to the nations, and that's us, the local church. So this morning, as we look to the Lord's Prayer, if, you, if you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, or you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, and when I gave that reference, you automatically knew, like, oh, okay, so we're focusing on, we're jumping from the Exodus to the Lord's Prayer, right? So I want us to continue this morning as we look to the Lord's Prayer to be overwhelmed at God's redemptive purpose as revealed in Scripture, as well as I want us to be compelled to pray for God's name to be made known in all the earth according to his redemptive purpose at work in and through us as his church. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We just sang those words a while ago. And those words in and of themselves are a prayer and a petition to God. And so as we look at this model of prayer that Jesus gives us this morning, I want us to see how this prayer mobilizes and pushes and and causes us to not only petition God for these things, but for us to walk in obedience to these very things that we are to be praying for. All right? So I'm going to ask you, church, to go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read once again from our text this morning, which is Matthew 6, verses 7 through 13. And when you pray, this is Jesus speaking, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, 
for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would be active and present and felt through the work of your Holy Spirit, working through your word to sanctify and edify your church for the very purpose of declaring your word and your gospel to the nations and help that to be abundantly clear to us today and every day as we seek you through your word and as your spirit works in and through your word. Help us to just not be able to shake the call that you have placed on your church to make your name known. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. So our text today comes right in the middle, smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, right? So this is the most famous sermon delivered by Jesus. So you could honestly say probably one of the most famous sermons ever, which points to the sinfulness of the current world and its religious systems and how life in His kingdom will look. So this is the whole focus of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is is giving a kingdom mindset, not on how to just survive and, and, and thrive and live amongst the kingdoms of the world at this time or, or for us now reading it for, for our time, but on what living in, my, in a kingdom mindset that he initiates looks like. And he wants to, to set that standard and to reveal these insufficiencies of the world and to reveal these things. So you go back, if you're, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, maybe you're not, it, kinda, it starts uh, at the beginning there of chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. And we move all the way through. And there's so many famous uh, quotes of scripture that come from this one sermon. So many of the things that we can draw our memories back to our times in Sunday school as a child or so many things that we're familiar with, uh, passages of scripture that we know, but maybe we don't, uh, maybe we can't exactly recite it by heart, but we know the gist of it. So many of those things come from this sermon. And so Jesus goes through and he's teaching about all these different areas of society, these areas of relationship, and how his followers and his kingdom and what his kingdom mindset looks like in the midst of this world. And so the Sermon on the Mount goes from chapter 5 all the way to uh, the end there of chapter 7. And so it's, it's, uh, it's a very lengthy portion of Scripture that we have here that covers a wide swath of life in the kingdom. But here's what I want to, to hit right off the bat. First thing on your outline this morning, hopefully you grabbed one on the way in. If not, that's okay. You can just take notes or the answer will be on the, the screen behind me. But first point on your outline this morning, the Lord's Prayer gives us a model to shape our heart for God's global glory. And that's going to be one of the, the, the key terms. You're going to hear me repeat it uh, over and over again uh, this morning. God's global glory. 
okay? And that's kind of the, the main focus, not just this morning, but of this entire series. But what I want us to see is that the Lord's Prayer gives us a model to shape our heart for God's global glory. And what does that mean? It means that, it means that as we are praying, one of the, the purposes and the effects and the fruits of prayer is that it is shaping us. Is that not that we're giving this mindless or endless list of petitions and wants and desires of our heart to God, which is too often what our prayers become, but that in prayer... We're petitioning that God would mold us and, and sanctify and edify us and refine us with a refiner's fire so that our heart would be reflective of his heart. And that our heart would be reflective of one who has been changed by his grace and is living for his glory. And so that's what I mean by this first point here is that the Lord's Prayer gives us a model to shape our heart for God's global glory. So what do I mean by a model? So Let's, let's kind of break this down first. So he first begins to talk about prayer. That's Jesus first begins to talk about prayer in verse 5 there. By first starting with the prayers of the Jews. So specifically, he starts with the prayer of the Jewish hypocrites, right? The religious elites or those who uh, were not part of the remnant, were not looking in faith to God's provision of Messiah, were not looking but had just simply allowed their Judaism to become just a cultural norm, right? And so he's addressing that type of prayer here, the self-righteousness of the time. And so prayer was at the heart of Jewish life as it should be for us as well. And it was common for public prayer to be said aloud in the morning, right? In morning, afternoon, and evening, public prayer was given. However, Jesus here isn't attacking the act of prayer itself, right? He's not instructing them not to pray here in verse 5. He said, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. So what's he attacking? He's attacking the heart or the, the motivation behind the prayer. Jesus isn't attacking the act itself, but the posture in the heart in the context of prayer. So Jesus says there in verse 6, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. So at the set time of prayer, these self-righteous Jews would immediately stop what they were doing and pray making a big display of their religious zealousness and a spectacle of their holiness and their piety, right? Now, Jesus himself prayed in public. So we know he's not saying that it's not okay to pray in public, right? That's, the, that's what I'm trying to get to here is contextualizing some of this for us because sometimes we can read these things and say like, oh, wow, well, why do we pray in public in our church services, right? It's not public prayer that Jesus is addressing. It's the heart behind the public prayer. So he's not condemning all public prayer because Jesus himself prayed in public. What Jesus is getting at is the heart of its, uh, as the internal motivation behind the prayer. And he urges them to instead show their commitment to the Lord by shutting the door and, private, and praying privately. And so he's saying, if you, if you truly love God so much, and if this is truly all these things that you're saying, these acts that you're doing, like, go do it in private and see if it maintains, see if, if you maintain a parallel zealousness here. 
Public prayer has value and proper place among our gatherings and corporate worship services. However, personal private prayer, completely out of public view and out of earshot, forces us to exclusively focus on God and better authenticate our cries of repentance. See, that was the issue here, is that their public prayers weren't focused on God as much as they were like on who the audience was. And so God wasn't truly their audience. So Jesus says, go therefore into a public, shut the door, and then let's see where your focus lies and what the heart of uh, your cries of repentance really reveal. So now our text for today is the continuation of this teaching from Jesus. This is where he shifts the focus of his negative example from the Jews to the Gentiles. So he addresses the prayers of the Jews here and and their religious zealousness and their piety and their public uh, display of all of this, right? And so now here in verse 7, he shifts from that to addressing Gentile prayer. And when you pray, do not, this is his negative example here. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. So he's referring to these pagan prayers, these pagan rituals, and and how they would go about praying. And he's saying, he uses that as his negative example now. So first his negative example was the religious elite, these zealous people who would pray out loud in public simply to bring attention to themselves. Now his focus is, so also don't just mindlessly repeat empty phrases. Okay, that should convict a lot of how we go about praying, right? Is that how we just kind of mindlessly working our way through it, saying some of the same things over and over and over again. He says, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. So this instruction from Jesus continues his pointed instruction on prayer. And his negative example of Gentile prayer as I was looking at this, it was very reminiscent of what we see the prophets of Baal doing in 1 Kings 18. You remember the famous story of Elijah uh, battling with the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal cry out, O Baal, answer us. But there was no answer, right? So they're forced to cry out more. And this also brings to mind an example in Acts 19 where we see this angry Ephesian mob led by a man named Demetrius, the silversmith. And they're chanting over and over again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, right? As they're getting ready to put, a, put on this public uh, false trial for Paul. So Jesus' example is that these pagans lift up mindless words of endless repetition to their false gods with no reply and no results to show, is his point. And so he calls out their vain efforts of prayer as heaping up empty phrases. That's the emptiness and the hollowness of their phrases, is that not only do they not have meaning because they're having to repeat them over and over again, but there's no weight, there's no answer behind these things. So in other words, these are mindless, hollow phrases that have no effect. And then giving explicit instruction not to pray in this manner Because God knows what we need before we ask, is Jesus' point. 
is that the point of prayer here isn't to, to come and, and give us these continual, uh, unmeaningful, repetitious words of, of offering up these things over and over and over again, thinking that if we pray more, God will then somehow weigh up all of those times that we've said it and then answer the prayer accordingly, right? And Jesus is like, that's not the point here. We're not heaping it. Look at these Gentiles. They're repeated time and time again, repeating these prayers, thinking that eventually their God will answer them. And he's like, that's not how the Father wants you to come before him in prayer. So that's the, the context with which then Jesus gives a model for prayer. Again, I, I wanted to point this point out because that was part of that first point there is that it's a model. So in the Lord's Prayer, we see Jesus say, pray like this. All right, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. So now to this point, so, so far, again, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Jesus gives us two truths. He's given us two truths at this point. One is the heart behind your prayer is of utmost importance. Okay, the heart behind your prayer is of the utmost importance. The second truth is that the outcome of your prayer is determined by God and not by how much you pray, not by the lofty words with which you are able to use. So number one, the heart behind your prayers of utmost importance and the outcome of your prayer is determined by God, not by how well you pray or what you pray or what you say or when you do it, but it is all and wholly dependent upon God's will. All right, so now to this point, you might be thinking to yourself, all of this is great instruction on prayer, but I thought this was a series on missions, right? So check this out. Jesus then gives this model for prayer and one that we're all very familiar with. Even many, many non-believers are familiar with this prayer. I can remember being in high school and praying next to a lot of guys that showed no fruit of salvation and repeating this prayer together as a team over and over again. Or seeing coaches that showed no fruit of salvation repeating this prayer, this empty phrases to them is what this became, over and over again. As if saying it in this exact way was what had the effect, right? So this, the emphasis here is on Model, and that's what I want us to get to. So pay attention to how this prayer starts out. Okay, verse 9. Pray then like this. And then he begins the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now there are a few key things to point out there. First, as I said, I put the emphasis there. Pray then like this. So this is where we know that this is a model. This is something that just kind of gives us an example, right? Because a model is, if we look at a model, it just shows us what something is like. It is not the actual thing. Or in this instance, a model gives us kind of something to build off of. It doesn't mean that we repeat this exact words in this exact manner over and over and over again, Right? And so this is the Greek word that's used there as the model, a heart, a focus of prayer is this. It's the Greek word hotus, all right? And that doesn't mean so much uh, to you or to many of you, meaning, but it means so or thus or in this way, right? So when you consider this in the context of Jesus, having just given a negative example of praying with mindless repetition of words, 
we know that he's not giving us the only prayer which we are to repeat end on end from here on out, right? He just gave the, the negative example of doing that. So he can't then say, don't do this, but instead do this, right? And then it'd be the same thing that he just said not to do, right? But he said, like this. The other context which he's given is addressing the heart or the motivation behind the prayer. Therefore, this can't be a prayer in which we are simply reciting meaningless tropes to and about God. Rather, this is to be a prayer which shapes our heart and kind of gives us a model to build off of for all of our future prayers. And this brings us to the second thing which I want to point out here, which is also the second point on your outline this morning. Living for the kingdom of God begins with a regenerate heart. Living for the kingdom of God begins with a regenerate heart. Because we can appeal to God as Father, but we can't appeal to God as Father if we are not children of Him. If we are children of this world, we cannot appeal to God as our Father. We cannot have a heart for the kingdom of God if we are living for the kingdom of the enemy. We cannot have a heart for the nations if we have a heart that is dead in sin. Paul explicitly lays out for us in Ephesians 2 that if you are not a child of God or not a child of God's grace, then you are a child of wrath, is how Paul puts it. He says this in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We're very familiar with that part. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is, that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. And then he goes on to say, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this is what you were, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And so the the point that I want to, I make that point because so often we hear and we see prayers, people offering up these empty sentiments on Facebook or we'll just see T's and P's, right? Even, some people can't even be bothered to say the full phrase of thoughts and prayers. They'll just offer up T's and P's, right? And so often we, we say to ourselves, where who, what are you, A, what, are, what does the thoughts even mean? And then B, where are those prayers being directed to? And are you actually praying them is often the thought here. Well, for those who have a regenerate heart, we know where true salvation and true power and true effectiveness is found, and that is in the cross of Christ. But we can't appeal to God as Father because that's how Jesus models for us here, our Father in heaven, we can't appeal to God as Father if we are children of wrath. So friends, attempting to do missions while living with an unregenerate heart, and you might still be saying to yourself, I still don't see the connection to missions. We'll get there, okay? While living with an unregenerate heart or while living an unregenerate life will produce unregenerate fruit of self-righteous moralistic deeds which make us feel good, but do not in any way save us, right? But here's the thing. Now, know this. God can and will and does use the efforts of the ungodly and the self-righteous to glorify himself and make his grace known. But that does not 
produce the salvation of the person that's doing it. We can't just do good works and think that God will somehow use all of this for our regeneration, right? But that comes before we begin to work on mission for him. So that's what I wanted to point out because Jesus begins this prayer with our Father. So if the relationship is not there, then the words behind it have lost their effectiveness, right? Jesus himself warns us of this just a few moments later, that many will attempt this dimly lit, self-righteous path of missions and of living in Him and offering petitions and prayers up to Him, up to the Father, to their own demise. Look forward just a little bit to chapter 7, still in the Sermon on the Mount here, but verse 21. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus very pointedly starts this prayer out here in chapter 6 with our Father in heaven. And this brings me to a point that I think is sobering, but also important to make. Jesus does not negate, refute, or change what God the Father has revealed of himself. Jesus illuminates and clarifies what God has already revealed himself of himself in Scripture. And here's why this is such an important distinction to make when we're talking about missions. Because we can certainly pick and choose and isolate some of Jesus' sayings to make ourselves think that God the Father in the Old Testament was some maniacal, far-off God who simply chose Israel and killed everyone else. And that God the Father in the New Testament under Christ is about nothing but love and grace and mercy and acceptance. But Jesus very pointedly says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, what what is the will of the Father? Interestingly enough, I think that's the focus of the next part of the prayer. Right? So we're still in verse 9 here. So we have to pray like this, our Father in heaven. So that we pointed out, we, we need to establish And in order for us to appeal to God as Father, we must be a child of His, right? So, this is the third and final thing which I want to point out to you from this verse. So, we talked about the model, we talked about the fatherhood and the relationship between us and God. Third and final thing, hallowed be your name. And here's the connection to missions. And here's where I want us to see. Jesus implores us that we pray for God's glory, His global glory. And that's the next point there on your outline, is that God's global glory is both the petition and proclamation of a regenerate heart. That God's global glory is both the petition, right? Meaning that we are asking God that He would do this, that we are coming before him, asking for his grace to make known or to do whatever it is that we're asking of him. 
and the proclamation, meaning it's what we make known, it's what we do, it's what we say, it's what we announce. So God's global glory is both the petition and the proclamation of a regenerate heart. So as God brings us to faith in Him, now as we have this relationship established with Him, we say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So what does that word hallowed mean? It's to, to make holy or to make known as holy, right? So his name is holy. So we're not, we're not asking that God would somehow make his name holier or make it holy because it's become unholy or, or anything like that. But in this petition, we're, we're asking God, Jesus models for us that we ask God that his name would be made holy on this earth. What does that mean? And it means that for those whose heart do not see his name as holy, do not know his name, do not look to him in faith as the creator of the world, that his name would be made known as holy in their hearts. And so that's the petition, right? So that's where we're asking God, hallowed be your name. But we are also proclaiming to God, Lord, holy is your name. Because that's what it means to have a regenerate heart is that we have come to know his holiness in the face of the cross of Christ, right? That by God's grace, he has made his holiness known to us. And so now we cry out in prayer, Lord, hallowed be your name. So as followers of Christ, those bearing the rights of the firstborn son, those seeking to usher in his kingdom, we bear the command to both petition God that his glory be made known through us. So again, this is part of shaping our heart. So that as we declare that we want God's name to be made holy, we want our hearts to be shaped by that. That we want everything we do to make God's name known as holy in all the earth. Right? So we bear both the petition that God would, uh, that his glory be made known through us. And we are both proclaiming that his glory has been made known in us so that it would continue to be made known through us. And this is it, church. Either you are overwhelmed at the glory of God made known in the face of Jesus Christ and submit to live a life under his rule and reign, making his glory known, or you are a child of wrath. And this is what the Lord's Prayer helps to to illuminate for us is that either our entire being, everything that we do desires that his name would be hallowed or there is something seriously wrong. And Psalm 115 elaborates this beautifully. I couldn't help but think of it. Uh, this is one of, one of the songs we very often in the car when we're riding with the kids, we'll listen to the village kids that's not to be associated with the village people, okay, but it's from the village church, okay, and it's their children's ministry has such great songs that have been really well produced for kids, and it's memory verses, a lot of it, and Psalm 115 uh, is one of those verses, Psalm 115.3. I would sing it for you, but I don't want to offend the village kids or you, so, but Psalm 115, Starting in verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory 
for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. So I cannot let us be a church whose lampstand is not brightly shining for the global glory of God among all the nations. Because this is what he has clearly dictated in his word his church is to be. And the responsibility is on us. We are included in God's plan to make himself known. So we will not stand idly by and waste our life just doing church while not being the missional church, which is on mission for God's global glory, which he has saved and sanctified us to be. So as we see this, this is what the rest of the prayer is built on. It's God's global glory. This is what the rest of the model of the prayer is built on, that we are both petitioning and proclaiming the hallowing of God's name. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God, your name is holy and we want that to be made known. So what do we want to see? We want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your will be done on earth here as it is in heaven, so that your name will be hallowed, so that your name will be made known. Jesus models for us to pray that God's kingdom would be established by his will on earth just as it is in heaven. This is the compelling theme of missions. This is the compelling theme of missions, that we would be continually made new by the power of the Spirit at work within us, therefore living by the standard of God's kingdom. As we do this, we are continually pointing others to the sweetness of his kingdom, that we may establish a kingdom citizenry that praises God's glory on earth just as the hosts of heaven do. So that we show that this isn't some book that's filled with all these restrictive rules and, and all this nonsense that people seem to think, but that, it's, that this is the way to freedom. This is the way to life. That when you realize the hallowedness of God's name, when you realize the goodness and the sweetness and the glory of God's name and the face of Jesus Christ, you realize that all this other muck and mire that we dwell in in the midst of a world that is broken by sin is nothing but enslaving. And so we want to live under a kingdom of freedom, not under a kingdom of sin and brokenness. And the mission of the church is the global glory of God's kingdom. That's the next point there on your outline. That the mission of the church is the global glory of God's kingdom. That everyone would realize that God's name is holy and that living according to his ways is the best way. That that is the way to freedom. That it's not restrictive. It's freeing. It frees us from the bondage of sin and shame and death. So let us consider him who saw fit to crush his son on our behalf of our sins, on behalf of our sins. Let us consider him who saw fit to crush his son on behalf of our sins that we might receive the rights of firstborn sons. So we get the rights of Jesus because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Right? That's the gospel. And then 
Would we then, church, look to him and tell him, I'll follow in obedience to missions when my bank account gets right? Or I'll follow in obedience to missions when my schedule clears up and I can, like, you know, I make it fit and it's just not so strenuous, right? Or I'll follow in obedience to missions when. Anytime we add that when on there or that if on there, we are walking toward disobedience. The minute we qualify a delayed response to missions is the minute we justify our disobedience. We are told and modeled by Jesus to be fervent in praying and petitioning that God would use us to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He doesn't tell us to pray this, that we might then just sit back and let him do all the work. We might just sit back and let God be God, right? But he tells us to fervently pray this so that he can shape our hearts to walk in obedience to this, that he is in the business of making all things new. So as those who have been made new, we join him in his business of establishing his renewed and regenerate kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And this is at the heart of the entire mission and the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Go backwards uh, to the left there to chapter 5, verse 16. You see, as Jesus coming right off of giving the Beatitudes, again, giving kind of the shape and the form of what it looks like to live for His kingdom in the midst of a world that is sold out for the kingdom of itself, right? And He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's not what the world says. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. None of this tracks with the thinking of this world. And then Jesus goes on to say this in chapter 5, verse 16. As he's talking about, uh, again, one of those famous verses, the salt and the light of the earth, right? And he says in verse 16, in the same way, because he says that you are a city on a hill uh, that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand so that it gives light to the whole house. And he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So this hallowing of God's name, this is, this is it. This is what the kingdom is about, is that as God makes his glory known in our lives, we then shine the light of his glory as the focus of our life. And that's what he's doing. He's continually making more and more lights, more lights to be put on the lampstand to shine the brightness and the goodness and the sweetness of his glory and his kingdom to the entire world. And this is what Jesus models for us to pray. The church is the shining lamp of God's glory to the nations. Well, what do we need? What do we need to live out this mission? If we are going to walk in obedience to God's mission for his global glory, displayed in his kingdom rule, surely we will not be able to do so by our own abilities, right? Well, we continue with the prayer. Verse 11, chapter 6. Turn back there. We saw your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we, we need strength and sustenance for this, right? Well, 
Give us this day our daily bread. So give us what we need for today. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What I want us to see is how this is in total service to strengthening and equipping and making us able to walk in obedience to making his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as in heaven, to walking in obedience to that, to shining that light of God's glory. Well, then we, we need to ask that he would provide for our daily needs so that we can be fed and strengthened and encouraged, that he would forgive us our debts and that he would also to help us to forgive the debts of those who have debts against us. So to reflect that same mercy as he has shown us, to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. And so that goes to the next point there and the last point there on your outline is that we are wholly dependent on God's provision, mercy, and grace. And that's the idea there of the last part of the prayer is that we are hallowing God's name. We are seeking God's name. We are petitioning that he would make his name known uh, and make his name holy in the hearts of those whom men is not. And we are declaring among ourselves that his name is holy. And then we are saying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So do what you will with us. And we say, just give us everything we need to walk in obedience to that. Give us our daily bread. That's his provision. Forgive us our debts. That is, don't show us the, we ask you not to show us the punishment that we just deserve. So that's mercy. Mercy is not receiving, right, something that we deserve to receive. Not receiving a punishment that we deserve to receive. Grace, then, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil. Evil of our sin, evil of this world that would have set to set itself against your kingdom and, and anything that is opposed to that in us or outside of us, deliver us from that. So we are wholly dependent on God's provision, mercy, and grace to walk in accordance with his mission. The success of the mission is not at all dependent on us. However, whether or not we are successful in living out the mission is totally dependent on how much we depend on God. The success of the mission not dependent upon us at all. But whether or not we are successful in living out the mission is totally dependent on how much we depend on God. Are we continually throwing ourselves at the Lord's feet saying, I am wholly dependent upon you to live out in obedience to your word today? Or do we just simply go about the day just trying to try our hardest, giving it our best, going at it with our best shot, knowing that we'll fail and just relying, seeking His grace at the end of it? Or are we saying, give me everything I need today to be strengthened to live for your kingdom. Give me everything I need today. Forgive me for the debt of my sin against you and then help me to reflect that same mercy and grace to those around me. And then protect me, Lord, shield me so that I can walk in obedience to your kingdom standards. If we put all of our dependence upon us and our abilities, we fail. If we humbly and sacrificially place all of our dependence on him, we will succeed because he will succeed. And that's the idea 
walking in accordance with missions. That's the idea of seeking for his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that he is at work. We have seen his redemptive purposes. That's the focus of this first two weeks of this series. We know that he will make his will be done. We know that he will be faithful to his covenant of making his name known. So we're saying, Lord, use me to walk in obedience to that. And this is what Jesus elaborates on at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Turn there again to chapter 7. You're seeing how the context of all this flows together, that it's not just some compartmentalized teachings within a sermon, but it's, it's all flowing together, pointing towards God's glory and God's kingdom being established through Christ. Chapter 7, verse 24, this is what Jesus elaborates. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So this is our call as believers. It's not that we do everything, that we walk in accordance and obedience to God's word by, under our strength, under our abilities, because then we're building castles on sand. But it's only when we wholly submit ourselves to God's provision, mercy, and grace that we can walk successfully in mission because the success is His and the glory is His and the kingdom is His and the work is His. And this is what we are setting out to do, church, each and every day, individually, and then consistently, corporately, together as the church that God has brought together here at Southside. That is our mission. His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that His name would be hallowed. Let's pray. God, we love you. We say and we cry, Holy is your name, and we petition, Lord, make your name known as holy. Help us to walk in accordance with that mission that as you are ushering in your kingdom, help us to live as kingdom citizens and to shine brightly the light of your glory and your grace in the gospel. Lord, as we enter into now this time of response, I pray that you would help us to respond appropriately and accordingly. I pray first, Lord, that if there is anyone here who is counted among as a non-believer or an unbeliever, Lord, I pray that you would ransom them to yourself, draw them in, overwhelm them by your grace and make your glory known, make your name holy in their hearts. Capture them in their wandering and make them respond accordingly. Lord, I pray for those of us who are here, who love your name, who know your name as you have revealed yourself in your word, that you would help us to draw deeper and closer to you in repentance and that you would strengthen us by your spirit to walk in obedience to your word. 
and help us also to respond in gratefulness and thanksgiving and song to what you have revealed in your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.